0: Warning, Wicked Wanderers may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. hello welcome to wicked wanderers i'm your wicked hostess Jacqueline. i hope everybody had an amazing weekend and went on a adventure it has been super hot out here in north carolina i just love it when the weather anchor says it's 90 degrees that's hot and then they're like Yeah, so there's this thing called heat index and feels like it's 110 degrees. 90 degrees was bad enough. 110, that's way worse. And here in North Carolina, we have a lot of humidity. So you got some swamp ass and sweaty balls everywhere. Speaking of sweaty balls, did you know that Ben and Jerry's had an ice cream called Sweaty Balls? It was vanilla ice cream with a hint of rum and fudge-covered rum and malted milk balls. It was actually really good. I think it was a limited edition ice cream, though. But you can Google it. It definitely says Sweaty Balls. And on that, This week, we will be traveling to Vermont. I will discuss a spooky place, some dark tourism, and of course, some fun things to do while we are there. Welcome to the Green Mountain State. Vermont is one of the six New England states lying in the northeastern corner of the country. Vermont is known for its outdoor beauty, delectable cuisine, and its continued existence of distinctive local cities and towns. Vermont is filled with vibrant fall foliage, family-friendly attractions, maple syrup, and ski slopes. Even though Vermont is an inland state, Lake Champlain has magnificent beaches, and there of course are several lakes, streams, and swimming holes. Despite being one of these smallest states, Vermont has an abundance of natural beauty. I actually have family that does live in Vermont, and it is truly a magical place. Before we get to our first destination, here are some fun facts and strange laws in Vermont. In Vermont, it is against the law to undress in public but is perfectly acceptable to get naked outside. Whistling underwater is prohibited by law. It used to be acceptable in Vermont to tether a giraffe to a telephone pole. First off, who owned a giraffe in Vermont? And it would be too cold for a giraffe to survive in Vermont. If somebody actually knows somebody who owned a giraffe in Vermont, let me know. And this is definitely a form of animal cruelty. It is forbidden to reject God's existence. Well, I'm breaking the law. And I feel like that shouldn't be able to be enforceable. I'm sure this is one of the dead laws. Since 1968, billboards have been prohibited in Vermont. They like to keep the landscape free from advertising pollution during a period of war landscape painting is prohibited a horse cannot be painted at any time even during a war every saturday night everybody in the city of bar must take a bath let's hope they do this more than once a week You'll need to request a written letter of approval from your husband if you're a woman and wish to receive false teeth. Well, that's sexist as fuck. Never call a Vermont court a kangaroo court. The highest dairy count to population ratio in the United States is found in Vermont. There used to be more cows than living people. Burton snowboards are based in Vermont. Lake Champlain has its own Loch Ness Monster. Mount Pillar is the smallest state capital in the United States. And finally, it was the first to grant women partial voting rights in 1880 and legislate same-sex marriage. Well, good for you, Vermont. And our first destination today is going to be Bennington. We will be going to the very haunted Southern Vermont College. The Southern Vermont College, formerly known as Edward Everett's Estate, is located in the quaint village of Bennington. Everett had made his fortune as the first person to discover oil in Ohio. He married Amy King, the daughter of a wealthy businessman. He built the estate as a summer home in Vermont. Legend has it that Everett's wife, Amy, drowned while swimming shortly after the property was built. Some argue that her death was a suicide or a murder. According to the official story, she died at another one of her homes in Washington, D.C. She had died there during a major operation due to a long illness. Everett, of course, remarried in 1920, and his three daughters did not like his new wife, and Everett died in 1929. This led to disputes and lawsuits. The case over his will was so bitter that it became known as the Battle of the Bennington Million, because it was the largest trial in Vermont, and it was also such a controversial and emotional trial. This may have laid to the groundwork for the future paranormal events on the estate. The site once housed St. Joseph's School, a Catholic seminary, which was closed and converted into a co-educational college, Southern Vermont College, And this college is extremely haunted. One of the most enduring ghost stories associated with the Southern Vermont College is that of a woman dressed in white. There's always some woman in white. It is believed to be the ghost of a young woman who died tragically on the premises. She has been seen many times, often loitering the hallways of her mansion or hovering over the campus grounds, depicted as a ghostly figure in a flowing white dress. The lady in white is said to extrude an overwhelming sense of sadness and despair. The library, which is located on another part of the property, is where there have been several paranormal encounters. Students and faculty have reported hearing disembodied voices, whispers, and even laughter from a seemingly empty building. Books have been known to fall off the shelves without explanation, and some have claimed to see shadows lurking among the stacks of books. These eerie events the library is housed by restless ghosts from the university's past. There's the haunted theater The theater at the Southern Vermont College is another location on campus that is said to be infested with paranormal activity. Actors, staff, audiences alike have reported sightings of unexplained cold spots. I don't know how you can report that as a sighting, but whatever. Disembodied footsteps and even a mysterious figure watching from the set Some believe these bizarre occurrences are the work of a mischievous lover of the performing arts. The cold spots are always random. The music area. In this area, there is definitely a strange undercurrent. Something is wrong there and feels dark. Complaints from students about windows closing or not closing are common. The music hall. Is secluded and isolated from the rest of the campus, and this is where a lot of the activity occurs. The campus is no longer operational, but you can visit. Just visit Bennington College and follow the campus signs to the building. The real question is, are you brave enough to visit here? Make sure you visit Hemmings. Motor, News, and Filling Station in Bennington. The Hemmings Motor News gas station is especially attractive to car enthusiasts. This old-fashioned full-service station invokes nostalgic feelings. The prices aren't higher than any other gas station, but not only can you fill up with fuel, but you can also have your windshield cleaned, your oil level checked. There is a gift shop that sells a wide variety of automotive memorabilia, including signs, logo clothing, model cars, and original license plates. The real fun is behind the gas station. Here you will find free access to a car museum, with a wide variety of old and classic makes and models that are on display. Browse the well-maintained vehicles at your leisure. A shiny vintage car is enough to make any car lover drool. Go to Glassenbury Mountain. Walk to the fire tower on Glassenbury Mountain. The hike is a spectacular view. Climb the 57-foot-tall tower. You will see miles of mountain scenery in one of Vermont's most beautiful locations. It is recommended to check weather conditions before starting the trek and to bring enough water and food. This hike is 31.1 miles, and that is round-trip and takes an average of 10 to 14 hours to complete. The trail is generally considered difficult and is often done as a one- or two-day backpacking trip. The views are great, but this area is also known as the Bennington's Triangle. According to legend, between 1945 and 1950, five different people disappeared from this area including a group of students and hunters. Only one body was found, but the cause of death could not be determined. Not to mention, there are remains of ghost towns left behind. In addition to the disappearances, there are also rumors of Bigfoot sightings, UFOs, and man-eating rocks. The area is also believed to be cursed. This trail is for experienced hikers and not for the faint of heart. But this area is incredibly beautiful and if you are willing to travel up to the top of the fire tower, it will be worth it. Again, only experienced hikers. Visit Vermontosaurus. Vermontosaurus is probably the craziest landmark in structure in all of Vermont. It is made from scrap wood and other recycled materials. The Vermontosaurus represents a 25-foot-tall, 122-foot-long dinosaur. Construction of the structure began in 2010 near Post Mills Airport. Borland owns this airport. Him and his friends began to build the monster out of discarded boards from Borland's Balloon Factory. They then nailed each board together to form a messy hide. Ironically, part of the sculpture collapsed in June 2012, but the belly of the beast, literally, was rebuilt by Borland and his 50 volunteers. During this repair, the group also created and attached a baby vermontosaurus. This roadside attraction is something you have to go see. It is located at 104 Robinson Hill in Threatford, Vermont. Go to the back room. The back room is hidden in a Pittsville restaurant behind the Pittsville General Store. Stop for some grocery shopping and head to the back when you're hungry. This hidden restaurant is open only a few nights a week. So if you want to go behind the shelf and have a snack, check with the shop owner in advance and make a reservation. However, the seats are shared, so if you are here to have an intimate conversation with another person, this is definitely not it. But this is a great way to meet people. And it's a very cool concept, and I find it absolutely fun. The menu does change regularly, and the menu is as mysterious as the restaurant itself. Meals are prepared using locally sourced ingredients and serve delicious dishes made with meat and seasonal vegetables. The address is 3963 Route 100 in Pittsfield. Visit the Ben and Jerry's Flavor Graveyard. The Ben and Jerry's factory in Waterbury is definitely no secret, but visitors may not be aware of the quirky gem on the factory's grounds, the graveyard of flavors, and no, sweaty balls is not there. Cheeky, funny, and sarcastic. The final resting place for the ice cream flavors that no longer exist. A reminder of the taste of ice cream from yesteryear. Stones are cleverly worded for over 30 flavors that exist in this graveyard. This is a stark reminder of what unpopularity can lead to. You do not need to book a factory tour to enjoy this graveyard. People can enter the mound independently from the factory and look at the tombstones. When you are there, do not forget to buy some Ben & Jerry's ice cream. There are usually flavors that are not sold nationwide at the factory and in Vermont, since this is where Ben & Jerry's was founded. The next place we are going to is one of my absolute favorites, Dog Mountain Mountain. This is located in St. Johnsbury. This 150-acre property has hiking trails, ponds, and meadows. The best part is the Dog Chapel located on the property. This place is unique and beautiful. It was founded by the artist and author Stephen Hunick as a place for people to celebrate the spiritual bond with their dogs. The chapel is Hunix's greatest work of art. Thousands of people from all over the world visit the Dog Chapel each year. The interior walls are covered from floor to ceiling with photographs, drawings, and letters, as well as memorabilia left behind as mementos of people's deceased loved ones. The chapel is a place of colorful, beauty, gentle humor, and deep love. A visit here will be unique and inspiring experience for all animal lovers. While you're there, don't forget to take your fuzzy friends out on this 150-acre property and have fun with them for the day. This place is truly unique. It's like a giant shrine of beauty to your best friend, your dogs. And I absolutely love everything about Dog Mountain and Dog Chapel. It is located at 143 Parks Road in St. Johnsbury. Emerson Falls. Emerson Falls is perhaps Green Mountain State's most exclusive hidden waterfall. It is so hidden that few people, even avid waterfall enthusiasts, have seen it in person. Just outside of St. Johnsbury is Emerson Falls. It is part of Sleepers River and surrounded by scenic beauty that Vermont is famous for. Emerson Falls is especially attractive in the spring after the snow has melted. Plunging 20 feet down a series of waterfall along a basalt slope, this waterfall is a must on any waterfall to-do list. This waterfall is not well known, so I would like to show you how beautiful this really is. I will post a picture of this waterfall on my Instagram at Wicked underscore Wanderers Podcast. Like I said, there are a series of large waterfalls that are a part of the Sleepers River. Some are on private property. However, visitors are welcome. As long as you clean up after yourself, there will be no problem. From I-91 in St. Johnsbury, take exit 21, follow US-2 west for 1.1 miles, and turn right onto North Danville Road. There will be a parking area and a trail to visit this beautiful hidden gem. Make sure you visit the Wampahoofus. The Wampahoofus Trail begins at Butler Lodge at an elevation of 1,000 feet on Mount Mansfield. This is Vermont's highest peak and continues until it meets the Long Trail. This trail is generally uncrowded and is in the forehead area of Mount Mansfield. To reach the Wampa Hoofus Trail, you must climb Butler Lodge Trail. Continue on to the Wampa Hoofus. This trail is named after a mythical creature that lives in the Vermont's Green Mountains, predating the Yeti and the Bigfoot. According to ObscureVermont.com, the legend of the Wampa Hoofus is tragically an ironic one. The wampa Hufus was a large mammal that some say resembled a hybrid that was part deer, part wild boar. The only place in the world you could find one was limited to a certain area of Mount Mansfield, usually between 2,600 and 3,200 feet in elevation. The Wampahoofus wandered around the mountainsides, moving in lateral directions across the slopes, and were well adapted to Vermont's mountainous terrain, especially because of one particular characteristic. The males traveled in a clockwise direction and females traveled in a counterclockwise direction, never deviating. Because of spending generations moving laterally in these patterns, their legs adapted and one of them became much shorter than the other as a result depending on the direction they moved. This also allowed them to graze quite comfortably on the steep hillsides. They stayed in their particular region, never venturing to the valleys below or the summits above. The females took an especially liking to Nebraska-notch area. The only time males and females interacted with each other was during mating season, and because of their odd traveling patterns and particularly different-sized legs, mating could only occur then. It is said they move at haste speeds, theoretically making them very difficult to come across. Their unusual evolutionary adaption wasn't an issue for many generations, but unfortunately, it would eventually be their undoing. The male's right legs and the female's left legs kept getting shorter and shorter until eventually, when a couple met to mate, they were no longer able to do so. As a result, the Wampa hoofas died out. Or are they completely gone? The only way you will know is if you take the Wampahoofus Trail. The Wampahoofus Trail was named after the Professor Ray Buchanan when he noticed the mountain resembled the profile of a Wampahoofus. There are also legends told by the Abenaki tribe of a juicy awas. this creature. Was a hairless giant bear that is said to roam the mountain as well, and they were extremely dangerous if encountered. You will continue a short way along the trail. You can take a detour down to the trail named Rock Garden Trail, which connects to Maple Ridge Trail. If you choose to continue to the Wampahoofish Trail, you stay on this trail. And you will soon find yourself climbing some rugged, steep rock faces to the top of the forehead of the Wampahoofus. There are amazing views of the Champlain Valley behind you, as well as a 360 degree view of the area. There is room to have a picnic and is one of the few places east of the Mississippi that can support a rare alpine tundra. This area is covered with stunt trees and plenty of delicate vegetation. From the Wampahoofish Trail, you continue on the Long Trail, north to the chin of the actual summit, or south towards Camel's Hump. Mount Ellen and Mount Abraham, connecting four of Vermont's five tallest peaks combined. It is easy to get lost, so always take care while hiking, pack food and water, and extensive trail maps. Always let somebody know where you're going and be careful. You don't want to get caught by the wampahoofus. Some notes before you go. The Wampa Hoofus is either closed or discouraged from use during the mud season, which is roughly between April and May. There is most likely to be ice or snow from October to May, and it is possible to encounter snow from September through June. The Rock Garden and nearby Maple Ridge are not ideal for dogs due to the frequent scrambling and clambering. To get to this, the Butler Lodge Trailhead is in Underhill, Vermont. While in Underhill, Vermont, make sure you visit Poor House Pies. Poor House Pies is located in the quaint town of Underhill. This cozy bakery specializes in sweet and savory traditional and innovative pies made from scratch using the freshest ingredients with the best flavor. They use Small batches and hand-mold each dough. You will get a pie made of love and make sure you savor every bite. From the classic apple pie to the chicken pot pies, the unique flavors like maple cream pulled pork, Mon cheese pie, and the Vermont mud pie. There is something for every palate here. There are pocket pies, donuts, coffee... And other items that are all carefully baked. Visit poorhouse pies and taste the difference that homemade treats can make. They are located at 419 VT15 in Underhill, Vermont. They are opened Tuesday through Sunday from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. and closed on Mondays. Keep an eye out for the flying monkeys in Burlington. On the shores of Lake Champlain, there are six flying monkeys adorning the roofs of two of the signature buildings in the harbor. The first two monkeys were created in the 1970s by a man named Steve Larrabee to expand upon the Wizard of Oz theme of the now- Defunct local store called Emerald City. When the store closed, the metal sculptures spent a couple of decades at different locations before finally being installed on their now present home on the roof of One Main. One Main is a beautiful, tall, stone building that has a backdrop of the beautiful blue Anirondike mountains that are across the lake. The flying monkeys were popular enough that Larrabee installed a pair of baby-sized ones atop of the same building and a pair of adult flying monkeys on the lake and college building adjacent to one main. When you are out in Burlington, make sure you find these beauties. They are located on one main street in Burlington, and don't forget to look up. These guys are so cute, and it's just a unique thing to do in general. While in Burlington, visit the Nepal Dumpling House. Orders are for takeout only, but you can eat these delicious dumplings filled with meat and vegetables outside. This place does not just offer delicious dumplings. Go past the small kitchen and you will find shelves and clothing racks at the back of this family-run store. They have beautiful and colorful collections of clothing, bags, and fashion jewelry, as well as arts and crafts brought to Vermont from the Himalayan country. This is a great way to learn about the culture in Nepal, in New England. Eat some delicious dumplings and get some really beautiful, cool clothes and items. Sounds like a win-win situation to me. Also go by the Shanty on the Shore. Located at 181 Battery Street in Burlington, Vermont, the Shanty on the Shore is a good old-fashioned seafood restaurant. That has over 200 years of waterfront Where If you are looking for the most fresh and delicious seafood, you have come to the right place. You can even pick out the seafood yourself. This place has amazing, delicious, fresh seafood with a menu that changes depending on the tides. I highly recommend going here if you are somebody who loves seafood. You must try a truly authentic New England dinner. Restore your faith in humanity and go by Donna Sue's Bakes and Cooks. Donna Sue Shaw is an amazing person and an avid baker from Grand Isle, Vermont. She makes her tasty treats in the comfort of her home. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, she started offering sweets to the public. Shaw hoped that passers-by on the island cycle pass would use a rest stop and a sweet stop. She initially envisioned her bakery as a diversion to the pandemic but her cakes were so delicious that it soon became a destination in itself. She sources most of her ingredients locally and sells merchandise for a fee. There are no cash registers just paper logs and a Venmo code. She sells her delicious goods based on the honor system. You can also deposit cash In addition to the sweet and savory cakes that she makes, she also sells granola, local maple syrup, cookies, scones, cakes. The address is 291 USA Route 2 in Grand Isle, Vermont. How freaking amazing. She sells baked goods just to warm people's hearts on an honor system. Donna Sushaw, you're a great woman. Here are some unique places to stay in Vermont. There is the Vermont Treehouse Compound in West Pawlet. This is a beautiful teeny tiny cottage on Lake Eden. This tiny one-room residence is just 240 square feet and is located on the shores of Lake Eden. You will be delighted to wake up knowing you're just a few steps from the beach. You can rent a kayak or a canoe and spend time on the lake. This is one of Vermont's most unique rentals. There is also Lilia Rustica located in the Mad River Valley. This is an elevated cabin among the trees. Lilia Rustica Treehouse offers a beautiful atmosphere with stunning views from every window. One of the highlights is the queen-size bed. That is downstairs, that is surrounded by windows on three sides. You can watch the stars while lying in bed, and this is truly a great place to rest your head at night. Have you ever wanted to stay in a castle? Irisburg, Vermont is home to the Gregory Castle. This is a Bavarian style castle built between 1990 and 1996 by Harve and Sarah. Gregory The couple did all of their work on their own. The castle is located on 20 acres of land in Israburg, Vermont. It has four towers and is currently a vacation rental and can be booked for a stay. The castle is surrounded by lush greenery and offers an amazing panoramic view of the mountains. This also makes it a ideal place for weddings. There is the White House Inn outside Wilmington is an ideal place to stay, especially if you wish to explore the southern Vermont area. The White House Inn sits atop of a hill surrounded by flower and leafy gardens and features 14 fireplaces, beautiful moldings and woodwork, and original light fixtures. There is also hand-painted wallpaper and an old servant-calling system hidden stairs, and even a haunted bank vault. Each of the 18 rooms has a private bathroom and is uniquely furnished. The Rabbit Hill Inn, located at 48 Lower Waterford Road, a romantic inn that takes you back to a more relaxed time in life. Hospitality is a centuries-old tradition at the Rabbit Hill Inn which opened in the 1700s as a place where merchants traveling from Montreal to Boston or Portland could rise a pint and spend the night. There is a candlelit dining room serving delicious American cuisine, crackling fireplaces, cozy lounges, afternoon lemonade on the patio, and gazebo. If you are looking for a place to wind down and relax, this is it. There is the Paw House Inn located at 1376 Claridon Ave in Rutland. I love this place. Each private room has a dedicated dog bed and all the anemones needed to provide a comfortable visit for you and your furry friend. All well-behaved dogs are welcome throughout the inn, even at the breakfast area. During the day, the dedicated staff provide a variety of dog services. There's Mario's Playhouse, which is available as an alternative to leaving your dogs unattended in your room at no additional fees. They also do everything they can to ensure that your dog is comfortable when you are not with them. All these services are included in your room's rate. This place also includes Diggins Dog Park, which is half the size of a football field and fully fenced. The park is home to dog-centered activities such as dog agilities, playtime, and general fun activities. The park is easily accessible from the inn. Guests can freely use at any time during the day or the night. I love this place, especially that it caters to dogs because many people don't want to go on vacation and leave their dog somewhere. So if they have an option to bring their dog to an amazing place that has a doggy daycare play group during the days and there's a park that you can take them out, you don't feel guilty about going on vacation and you can have so many more adventures and bring your best friend with you. And finally, there is the Casablanca Inn. Vintage refurbished cottages that are located in Manchester. The Casablanca Inn Motel is a comfortable and quaint option with a cabin floor plan that is suitable for couples, families, and groups. Dogs of all breeds and sizes are also welcome at no extra charge, as long as all policies are followed. There is even a dog park nearby that you can take them to. These rustic cottages have classic country nostalgia with different themes for each room, such as fishing, forest, and river themes. Each cottage has a covered porch, and a charcoal grill is available to use on site. And now it is time for our final destination. Let's get wicked. We are heading back to Burlington, and we'll be going to 346 Shelburne Road. It is now an office building but it was the original site of the Elizabeth Lude Home for Unwed Mothers. You may wonder, what is significant about this place? Well, this is the birthplace of Ted Bundy. Bundy was born here on November 24, 1946. Unfortunately, The mansion no longer exists and was demolished February of 1970 to make way of an office building. Ted's surname was Cowell, and it wasn't until 1951 that his mother, Louise Cowell, met his stepfather, Johnny Bundy. The true identity of Bundy's biological father is still unknown. There are reports that a man named Lloyd Marshall was listed on his birth certificate. Louise later claimed that his real father was a young Philadelphia-based sailor called Jack Worthington. According to Louise, Worthington abandoned her soon after she became pregnant. In her own words, he flew the coop. This left Luis in a very difficult situation as being an unmarried mother during the 1940s carried a huge social stigma. To hide the family shame, many women were sent to homes for unwed mothers where they could give birth in a relatively secret place and then put the baby up for adoption. That way, both The woman and her family could continue to live their lives as normal, untarnished by such an indignity. Wow. Women really had no fucking rights back then. What fucking bullshit is this? Oh no, you're shaming your family. Fucking bullshit. To spare her family from embarrassment, Louise lived at the Elizabeth Ludd home in Vermont for about two months until she gave birth. It is believed that she left the home shortly after Bundy was born. After giving birth, she put Bundy up for adoption, and she returned to her parents' house in Philadelphia, all by herself. A few months later, her father, Samuel Cowell, learned that his grandson had not been adopted and that he was still at the home for the unwed in Burlington. Consequently, he decided that it was time to bring the toddler back to Philadelphia, and when Bundy was returned to Philadelphia, he was told that his mother was his sister, and that his mother's parents were his parents. It wasn't until 1974 when Bundy realized that his mother had lied to him for so many years and that she was actually his mother. Ted would grow to be a handsome, educated, and intelligent man who appeared to be well-adjusted. Bundy even volunteered for a crisis telephone hotline where he met the famed author Anne Rule, who was also a volunteer there. He had a steady relationship with Diane Edwards, a.k.a. Stephanie Brooks, a girlfriend who would fuel his maniacal rage after she left him. Ted was studying psychology at the University of Washington on January 31, 1974, when an attractive female student suddenly disappeared. Over the coming months and years, more disappearances followed. Ted's victims were generally young, attractive women with dark hair parted in the middle. His modest operandus was to approach his potential victim faking an injury, for example, by wearing an arm sling or cast. He would ask them to help him carry his books or packages. He would lead them to a secluded area, and when they were alone, he would knock them on the head with a crowbar, stuff their bodies into his car, strangle them while they were unconscious, and then rape their dead bodies. He would then leave the naked body in a wooded area, mostly the Taylor Mountain in Washington State, where many of his victims would be found. Along with countless other suspects, Ted was questioned by the police but initially escaped unscathed because he did not quite fit the image of a deranged serial killer. Bundy then attended law school in Salt Lake City, Utah, where he murdered the police chief's daughter on October 21, 1974. Following another murder in Utah, In Then another girl went missing. January 12, 1975, killings eerily similar to the one in Utah started happening in Colorado. On August 16, 1975, he was arrested by Salt Lake City Police for possession of burglary tools. And when the cops searched his bronze Volkswagen Beetle, they found handcuffs, stockings, and a homemade mask. Bundy was identified on November 1974 by a woman who narrowly escaped his grasp. In January 1977, he was extradited to Colorado where he was tried for murder. In June 1977, he escaped from Pitkin County Jail by jumping through an open window. Thankfully, he was captured eight days later. On December 30, 1977, he escaped again from Garfield County Jail by sawing a hole in the ceiling of his cell. Is nobody fucking paying attention to what this motherfucker's doing? Like, he's already escaped once, so let's just not supervise him and then he somehow finds shit that he can saw his way through. It must have been the 70s. I don't I don't understand. Bundy would then travel to Tallahassee, Florida, where he lived under an alias. On January 15, 1978, he invaded the Chai Omega sorority that was on the campus of Florida State University, beating four female students and killing two. After escaping from Chai Omega sorority, he broke into another woman's house and severely beat her. The woman thankfully survived the attack. She was his last living victim. None of this would have happened if they kept better tabs on this motherfucker. On February 9, 1978, he kidnapped 12-year-old Kimberly Liach, raped her, and slit her throat. Her body was found eight weeks later in a state park. On February 15, 1978, Pensacola police arrested him after running his license plate. And finding out that his car was stolen. A dental impression was taken for a comparison with bite marks found on one of the Chai Omega victims. And the impression matched. So this guy evaded police for years and gets caught because he was driving a stolen car. That's crazy. And of course, because Bundy's a sociopath and full of himself... He decided to defend himself. He had the help of several lawyers, all in vain. He was found guilty in 1979 and sentenced to death by electrocution. Ten years later, with death finally staring him in the eyes, he began to confess to a staggering 36 murders in total, though some investigators suspect the actual number was higher. He was executed at the Florida State Penitentiary in Stark, Florida on January 24th, 1989. Many spectators cheered and celebrated his death. So while you're standing at the birthplace of one of the most sadistic serial killers in America, think of his victims. Joni Lenz was assaulted in 1974. Linda Ann Healy, murdered in nineteen seventy four. Donna Gale Manson, murdered in nineteen seventy four. Suzanne Elaine Raincourt, murdered in nineteen seventy four. Roberta Parks, murdered nineteen seventy four. Brenda Ball, murdered nineteen seventy four. Georgianne Hawkins. Murdered in 1974. Nancy Wilcox. Murdered in 1974. Melissa Smith. Murdered in 1974. Nancy Wilcox. Murdered in 1974. Laura Ayam. Assaulted and abducted in 1974. Carol DeRanche. Assaulted and abducted in 1974. Deborah Kent murdered nineteen seventy four. Janice Ott murdered nineteen seventy four. Denise Naslund, murdered nineteen seventy four. Karen Campbell murdered nineteen seventy five. Julie Cunningham murdered in nineteen seventy five. Denise Oliverson murdered in nineteen seventy five. Lynette Culver, murdered in 1975. Suzanne Curtis, murdered in 1975. Lisa Levy, assaulted in 1978. Margaret Bowman, assaulted in 1978. Karen Chandler, assaulted in 1978. Kathy Kleiner, assaulted in 1978. Cheryl Thomas, assaulted in 1978, and Kimberly Liatch, murdered in 1978. There are countless other women who fell victim to Ted Bundy that have not been found and identified to this day. So while you are standing at the birthplace where this serial killer was born, throw a middle finger up in the air and hope Ted is suffering the same way his victims did in hell. And this concludes my episode of Wicked Wanderers. And as always, wander more and stay wicked. Bye! Thank you so much for listening to my episode of Wicked Wanderers. You have no idea how much I greatly appreciate each and every one of you. If you could leave me a five-star review on Apple Music or Spotify, I would greatly appreciate it. This helps others find my podcast. I do write, edit, record, and produce everything by myself on top of having a full-time job and a full-time job at home with some sweet old little angel muffins. Bear, who is 16, Rex, who's about 10 or 12, and Little Wheezy, who is 14, that all have health issues. And I created this podcast just for fun. Pictures of every place discussed will be posted on my Instagram at wicked underscore wanderers podcast. Please email me any experiences you had while on vacation or great places that you have been to at wicked wanderers podcast at gmail dot com. I do have a Patreon set up at Patreon dot com slash wicked wanderers podcast. If you wish to donate to the cause, you can do so. There is an additional bonus episode up as of now. If you do not wish to join, you can always do a one-time donation. Either way, I greatly appreciate everything you guys do. And links to some of the information used are located in the show notes. Thank you so much. Bye.